Hello and welcome to the second episode of the new podcast from the Society for the Study of Addiction, herein referred to as Addictions Edited, the monthly take-home. This is a monthly podcast summarising the latest news and research and working out the implications of policy across the addiction sector. Today we have an interview on delivering smoking cessation, Um, we've got features on ketamine for alcohol use disorders, uh, vaping, we're talking about dual settlements, US cannabis laws, tapering from methadone and so much more. Um, so before we dive into into all of that, um, I'd like to introduce our guest host today, and this is uh, Dr. Sharon Cox from University College London, the Department of Behavioural Science and Health. Uh, Sharon, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Sharon, um, a lot of your recent work is based on uh, delivering sm- smoking cessation interventions um, among people who are homeless. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why that's such an important uh, area to study? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, um, as I'm sure you'll know, people who are homeless, um, and I, I use that in its broadest category, between rough sleepers and people who are sofa surfing or in temporary accommodation, these people experience some of the worst health inequalities. Um, rates of respiratory illnesses are exceptionally high and um, other types of preventable illness and disease are also exceptionally high. And tobacco smoking really does contribute to these health inequalities. So we see that rates of COPD are exceptionally high in this group, 14 times higher than the um, usual uh, UK population. Um, And we see um, from large cohort studies from the US that actually tobacco-related cancers, so cancers of the trachea, the bronchus and the lung, are the second um, biggest uh, killer in adults experiencing homelessness um, over the age of 45 and the second biggest killer in adults under this age. Um, And as well as, you know, we know how smoking impacts um, health. We know that it impacts people's mental health, it impacts their well-being. It also has huge financial implications with up to a third of people's low or no income going on their tobacco. So there's a lot to be gained if people can quit smoking. But unfortunately, we have this situation in the UK where almost the more health and social needs you have, the less likely your smoking is to be addressed. It's seen by health practitioners as the last comfort or the last pleasure. And so that's um, something that my work really tries to tackle. Um, I know one of your one of your studies is looking at giving uh, vaping products to people who are homeless. Um, and, and I guess I got there's two questions there. One is, is does that help? And, and the other is, um, in, in what ways does smoking cessation need to be altered uh, for it to be effective among uh, people who are homeless? Yeah, so the first question, will vaping products help? Well, we're running um, the world's first cluster randomised control trial funded by the NIHR to test that. And that's going to be looking at e-cigarettes versus a, a what we call usual care. And that's that that's defined as a referral to the Stop Smoking Service. We don't know whether e-cigarettes will be effective. Other studies um, out in in other clinical groups um, and in the usual smoking population have shown that e-cigarettes are effective, but we don't know in this group and there are many challenges. Why e-cigarettes may have a benefit in this group um, is actually because when they are offered in a homeless centre, a centre which is already well-versed in delivering harm reduction, staff seem to get it. They seem to understand where an e-cigarette sits within the interventions that they're already offering. 
So you can you can describe an e-cigarette within the third sector alongside other um, you know, you can describe it in the same way you would other harm reduction um, interventions. So just as you would give out safer injecting equipment or methadone, an e-cigarette is like this. We are taking away the more harmful behaviour or trying to eliminate or reduce it and replace it with something that is ultimately much safer, um, a safer way of using a substance. So, and that is with, you know, clean forms of nicotine, but without the combustion. So that's what we're testing in that trial. In the second point, what needs to change? Well, first and foremost, we just need to start offering something. We run a Cancer Research UK funded um, cross-sectional survey of 100 homeless centres in the UK to find out what was currently being offered. And hardly any of the centres at the moment are offering any type of support to people that come into their centres and the main reasons really you know with because of staffing and because of training so we really need to do this big push for tobacco harm reduction training to be offered a, a, um, alongside all other types of harm reduction training and development. In line with that um, uh, those themes of staff training and smoking cessation are three minutes into this month uh, comes from Mary Yates, who is a smoking cessation uh, lead um, in SLAM. My name is Mary Yates, and I'm a nurse consultant for health promotion and well-being at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. And I have lead responsibility for implementation of the smoke-free policy there. I became really interested in the physical health care of people with mental health problems. I was observing that people with serious mental health problems within our services were not only losing a lot of life years, they were losing them from completely preventable illnesses that were causing them to really suffer with multiple conditions like heart disease, lung disease and cancer. In mental health care services, no two days are the same. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy most about the job, actually, because I always have a plan for every day, but you never quite know what's going to happen. Um, so I have my own caseload of patients that I'm supporting. Um, I do carbon monoxide monitoring with them um, and provide behavioural support for them and provide them with whatever support they need, which might be vouchers for NRT or it might be uh, free e-cigarette supplies, there's nothing quite like helping somebody to stop smoking. I've been nursing for many, many years, but there really is nothing to compare to the joy and the satisfaction that you get when somebody nails it and manages to succeed. It's just the, the best feeling in the world. A lot of the people I work with, they're trapped in poverty because of their smoking. They spend about one third of their income on their cigarettes. So once you can release back all that money into the family budget, it really changes so much for entire families. Lots of patients are able to reduce their medication by up to 50% because they no longer have this problem of the tar and tobacco smoke uh, interfering with the me metabolism of their medications. The most frustrating thing about my work, I think, is just still the number of healthcare professionals who just don't see that actually, if we all focus together on providing support for smokers to quit, then their health would improve so dramatically and, and all of their other conditions and problems would 
would be improved also. So that's quite frustrating still. But it means that people like me have to, on a daily basis, spend my time um, educating and coaching and supporting and teaching other healthcare professionals um, to to have conversations with smokers and to be providing the right support to them. So I, you know Mary uh, Sharon. Um, I, I, I always find her enthusiasm very infectious um, in in this setting. Yeah, absolutely. Mary's great. She's a, a real leader in this field. I think um, her knowledge equals her enthusiasm as well. Um, we need many Marys, unfortunately. Um, you know, if we could if we could um, clone Mary, then we mm. would we would really be able to fight the cause, as it were. If there's any funding uh, for us to work on that, uh, then do let us know. Um, one of the things that I that really struck me, she was talking about her joy uh, um, and satisfaction at helping people to quit. But she also talks about um, a lot of the benefits that people find when they do quit smoking. Um, and it often kind of gets overlooked in those conversations about how difficult and hard and uh, it's the last thing that you need. There's this kind of like everything's so very difficult you shouldn't try. But But within that, there are there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of benefits to come from smoking cessation which which often kind of come second i guess in those conversations the point that mary makes about there being many incentives is something which we find in our work is really important so for people experiencing homelessness their health is already quite poor so talking to them about improving their health is sometimes a non-starter we've had people say to us what I really want is to not share cigarettes anymore. What I really want is to not pick up discarded cigarette ends because that makes me feel bad about myself. And I I feel better when I'm not engaging in those behaviours. So it's about starting the conversation at where people are at, which is a real principle of harm reduction um, and, and, and service user-led um, interventions. When people say, this is the goal that matters to me, as opposed to us saying, well, this is the goal that should matter to you. And and Mary totally gets that. Yeah. Um, excellent. So now moving on to the news. And we are joined as ever by Dr. Carol Getty from the Addiction Journal Newsroom. Uh, Carol, good to see you again. Um, which news stories have uh, crossed your desk this month? Hi, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, so first up is a, a news story from the United States, and they've taken a huge step forward in terms of their cannabis uh, legislation, which I must say has been highly anticipated. So in mid-November, Republicans in the House of Representatives introduced a bill that would legalise cannabis at the federal level. Um, and cannabis legalisation and attitudes towards cannabis legalisation have come a long way. And research has recently suggested that as many as 60% of adults believe that cannabis should be legal for both medical and recreational uh, use. And cannabis has become big business in the States with um, the legal cannabis market expected to reach over $40 billion um, by 2026. And since 2012, 18 states and the District of Columbia have legalised adult cannabis use, with as many as 37 states legalising cannabis for medical use. Um, however, it does remain illegal at federal level. So the bill is titled the States Reform Act, and it would make cannabis legal for recreational use um, among individuals aged over 21 but it would be subjected to advertising controls and regulations, but these measures uh, would, would effectively be left to the state authorities to, to determine. 
Um, and just to mention, similar legislation has been proposed um, uh, previously, uh, as early as back in July, by the Democrats, but it unfortunately fell flat. And this new bill diverges from uh, this from this previous proposal, mainly in regards to suggested taxes and oversight. So while the previous proposal would have given the Food and Drug, uh, Food and Drug Administration um, oversight, the new bill would limit the FDA's involvement to medical cannabis only and make the Treasury's Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau the primary regulator. A lot of the campaigning around uh, legal change uh, uh, goes on principles and yet whether something is enacted or not is often is often in the detail. Uh, so, you know, thanks for that uh, that detail there, Carol. Uh, which which other stories um, uh, took your eye? Yeah, I wanted to touch on one story that I've been following, well, we have been following at the Edition Newsroom um, uh, quite recently. So in September this year, the International Criminal Court granted a prosecutor's request to commence an investigation into the crimes that were committed between 2011 and 2019 in the context of the Philippines war and drug campaign. So central to this investigation is Duterte, who's the Philippines president. And the criminal court has publicly stated that the war on drugs at the hands of Duterte was a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population. And the president rose to power, promising a merciless crackdown that would rid the country of drugs. And even on the campaign trail, he once said that there would be so many bodies dumped in Manila Bay that fish would grow fat from feeding on them. Um, and since he was elected to power in 2016, between 12,000 and 30,000 civilians are estimated to have been killed in anti-drug uh, operations. But um, just recently there, the uh, International Criminal Court announced that they have temporarily halted its investigation. And this follows a request from Philippines ambassador, uh, or ambassador Eduardo Malaya. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that one. It, it's a horrific story and, and, and one that that shouldn't go out of uh, out of the general attention, certainly. Yeah, and another one, just keeping with the tone, um, I wanted to mention that the US Centers for um, Disease Control and Prevention, so the CDC, has just recently reported that more than 100,000 people have died from drug overdose deaths in the US um, over the 12-month period from April to April 2020 to 2021. This figure is unfortunately 28.5% higher than uh, what was recorded in the 12-month period up until April 2020. Um, and a range of different substances implicated in that, including synthetic opioids and stimulants. Uh, yeah, and there's, there, there's been a similar uh, increase in the UK last year with UK drug deaths uh, reaching their highest rate. And there's, there's quite a lot of work happening with the um, uh, Scottish Drug Death Task Force um, on this issue. There's quite a few papers actually out uh, this month uh, that refer to uh, the increase in overdoses in the US and, and actually trying, uh, you know, in, in terms of research, trying to unpick whether this is because of lockdown, because of the social isolation, because of uh, different types of drugs, because of existing trends is is a really difficult thing to do. It will take several years to kind of identify whether this was because of COVID lockdowns and if so, which elements of that um, have increased these drug deaths. But nonetheless, they, they are high and, uh, and, and need to be addressed, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to pick up on a number of these different uh, news articles, but there's always a lot happening at the Addiction Newsroom. So uh, without getting into any other stories in, in much detail, you can read about it in the Addiction Newsroom. But just to flag up that the, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, so the UNODC, has reported that as much as 85% of global opium comes from Afghanistan. 
um, and another news, Lithuania has rejected law that would uh, that would have decriminalised the possession of small quantities of drugs. And then just finally, uh, a story closer to home. So Ireland has banned alcohol advertisements at all sporting events. News from across the globe, and it just keeps coming in uh, week by week. Um, the news that, that that struck my eye was was today on the well today as as in the day we're recording this, not the day that that you are listening to it. Uh, uh, the UK announced its drug strategy. So this hasn't actually yet been published. So I haven't read it. So I'm going to try and resist commenting on it too much. It looks like there is increased funds. This this strategy follows the Dame Carol Black report that we talked about last podcast. Um, uh, there's what there was so much to discuss about this, but basically these drug strategies determine a lot about how drug treatment is provided um, or will be provided over the next ten years. It's difficult to overstate how important this is to the sector. So, um, although by the time you listen to this, you might be sick and tired of hearing about it and the analyses, uh, it's worth persevering because because this stuff matters. Um, the other story was about drug checking services being legalised in New Zealand. Um, so we have drugs checking services um, in the UK, the Loop people, people such as that, um, and they're of, they're they're often run with a kind of memo of understanding or a, or a letter of support from local police forces. Uh, whereas in New Zealand, what they've done is, is make this legal, so that there's kind of guarantee in law that they're not going to be arrested uh, um, for providing these services. They've also given $800,000 to support coordination. Again, there's this emphasis on large festivals and events, and it's also always worth noting the importance of community drug checking services or the opportunities in uh, community drug checking services for people who use drugs in what is not a kind of recreational um, uh, festival-based kinds of ways and the opportunities for harm reduction there, uh, which often slips off the radar in in favour of uh, sellable headlines about festivals. Um, uh, Sharon, which uh, news story uh, caught your eye this month? Yeah, so this is a story that for those of us who work in e-cigarette research um, is something that we've been following closely. So the e-cigarette giant Juul, um, that's Juul Labs, who make the Juul um, pod device, which is really popular in the US, um, has been in court with the state of Arizona and um, they have settled a 14.5 million lawsuit So that will be paid to the state um, and vowed not to market to young people um, in the state to settle a consumer fraud uh, fraud lawsuit. So um, this is the second uh, big payment that Juul have uh, had to settle. Um, Some of you will probably know, um, for those of you that don't, there's been widespread concern in the US that the uptake of youth vaping has um, can be attributed back to marketing, um, so questionable marketing involving young people. And Juul is one of the products that in high school surveys is often named as the device that young people are using. So the company have um, been taken to court, they've settled this $14.5 million lawsuit and um, some of this money now is going to go back into the system towards targeted youth vaping prevention interventions. So it's really um, an interesting story because if if you look through the story, and this is in the Daily Mail, there's lots of stigma-laden words in there. So there's there's reference to gateway and nicotine addiction. Um, uh, um, 
and um, you know there's there's this sentence here um, e-cigarettes you know um, they are safer than smoking but they are still addictive and dangerous to health especially for teenagers whose brains are still developing and this idea that um, nicotine is um, somehow going to damage the brains of, of teens who are using these products is something that you know is people are concerned about in the US. Why I'm interested in this, because we don't have this problem here in the UK, is um, that I think that e-cigarettes of all different types have, 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 have a real place in helping smokers, and many of who are extremely disadvantaged to quit smoking. And the concern is that this, um, these types of lawsuits might further push the e-cigarette industry into into being seen as the same as the tobacco industry is these irresponsible organizations you know with a with you know a questionable moral compass and therefore we lose sight of the value of these products um jewel or any other as as legitimate smoking cessation aids so um you know this isn't something that we experience here in the UK um because we have really strict regulations around marketing and we don't see young people in adverts really in the UK. So yeah yeah that's a really interesting story and I think this is going to be the first of uh, you know, well the beginning of many cases. You know if you look historically at uh, tobacco companies there's there's never been any question or the, for a long time there hasn't been any question about whether their products might have some therapeutic benefit it just doesn't and when there's a kind of easy and their product is bad and it becomes a more difficult conversation when you have um you know large uh, organizations um who are interested in marketing and selling things um and who may do things that we wish they wouldn't in order to sell those things and a product that we would like some people not to use and that actually can be very very helpful for other people and it's a much more difficult conversation to have um now we're going to move on to a feature from our phd addicted to research team um and this is from marva chloe and zoe talking about marva's paper on ketamine for alcohol use disorders Ketamine is a drug mainly known for its anesthetic and analgesic properties. Um, so it also has strong dissociative effects. Um, and beyond its anesthetic effects, it's also been shown to have antidepressant benefits. And it's recently been applied to um, mental health problems and substance use disorders as well. So as well as obviously being used as a recreational drug, can you tell us a little bit about um, ketamine's history of, of clinical use? It's been developed as an anaesthetic drug and it was sort of developed as an alternative to PCP, uh, which is another um, anaesthetic and also recreational drug. Um, yes, it was developed in 1960, but very early on in late 1967, um, we see there's reports of recreational use of ketamine. But I guess in terms of other clinical uses outside of anesthesia and analgesia, it's been started to be used as an antidepressant drug. So there was a trial in 2020, 2000, not 2020, uh, which uh, was a really small trial looking at the effects of ketamine in a group of people with uh, depression. And from then on, there's been studies about depression, bipolar, suicidal ideation, anxiety disorders, uh, PTSD, eating disorders, and also substance use disorders. I, I would say the most developed area is probably depression and bipolar and suicidal ideation and the rest of the areas more recently 
uh, there's been more research in those fields as well. Yeah. Can we talk about this study, this wonderful paper that you've written, Marva? Could you give us a brief introduction uh-huh. um, just to the study itself and the, the trial that it took its data from? Ah, oh, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, I guess the study is uh, interviewing participants who took part in the clinical trials. So these people were receiving uh, treatment for alcohol use disorders and they were assigned to randomly assigned to either ketamine or placebo conditions. Um, and they also received uh, either a psychotherapy, which was relapse prevention focused mindfulness uh, therapy or an alcohol education. So again, randomly assigned to those conditions. And we were interested in their experience of the trial and their acute experience of ketamine and how some of the experiences might be related to their outcomes and perhaps gaining a bit deeper understanding of how the infusions might have affected their relationship with alcohol or um, how it might have had any impact on their perspective on life and other things in the world. It's not just looking at those very kind of black and white findings. Is it, did you stop drinking? Yes or no? You yeah. can look at people's, have, have your feelings changed around alcohol? Have your motivation changed? You know, has your relationship changed? Uh, so I think that's, yeah. that's a really interesting aspect. One thing I thought that was really interesting in your conclusions from the paper is the way you set out um, practical recommendations. So based on the qualitative results, things that you thought needed to be done better moving forward. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my favourite points was the inability of that term disassociative anaesthetic to actually Mm -hmm. capture the range of diverse acute effects that were happening as part of these ketamine infusions. You recommended the development of a new measure which captured Mm -hmm. a wider range of these acute experiences. And yeah, I think, you know, one of the issues as well in terms of measuring ketamine effects, it's not just the lack of measures about, you know, these other effects of ketamine, like mystical and spiritual effects, but also the measures we have for the dissociative effects are not perfect either. Um, So I think this is really important because there are some studies looking at, you know, whether ketamine's acute effects are related to Um, you know, improved outcomes in terms of mental health. But if we're not measuring them accurately, then, um, you know, the results are not quite so reliable. A fascinating study. Um, Any, do you have any thoughts on on ketamine for, for alcohol use disorders? I think the study sounds fascinating. And I'm really interested in this type of alternative approaches to using substances that we traditionally see as you know uh, recreation or slash party drugs um, in a more therapeutic setting um, but I it would be wrong of me if I didn't stand up for the substance use services here Rob you might know in our previous conversations I spent many years working as a substance use worker primarily actually in alcohol addiction services for the NHS many moons ago um, before being an academic proper, but and um, we know we already have so much that we know works good, you know, structured psychosocial support, in group treatments, other types of treatments, um, medications aligned with behavioural support. They're not being funded properly, so um, I I think that these alternative treatments, which you know they're alternative at the moment, the idea is that they would become more mainstream we can't lose sight of the fact that we we do not currently have enough funding for the service, for the interventions which we know work um there's also i thought i also think that stuff is very interesting um around uh, psychedelic research just um i think 
uh, Zoe mentioned it about how uh, those drugs can change people's relationship with substances. Um, and, you know, you often see that in treatment. Again, you know, I used to work in addiction treatment services as well that actually someone's relationship with a substance will change before they actually change their their drug use you know that that point of decision of of making some kind of commitment still happens on that cycle of change you know that point of decision and contemplation happens before you've changed anything and so actually exploring how uh interventions whatever they might be uh changes people's relationship with substances i think is is fascinating um, okay, so if we move on to the research area, uh, Sharon, which uh, which pieces of research really um, uh, grabbed your eye this month? This is a paper just out in Addiction by um, Charlotte Albury um, and colleagues. So this is a qualitative piece of work, um, a series of semi-structured interviews that were nested within a randomised control trial. And this was... Um, uh, in this trial, primary care clinicians offered free e-cigarettes and encouraged people who described as um, hardcore smokers, so defined in this paper as people who have stated that they don't want to quit smoking and they've refused other pharmacotherapies or, or uh, support, who also have pre-existing chronic diseases. Um, so they offered this e-cigarette and um, in the trial, but this paper uh, re- reports on the qualitative components. So, uh, how did how did people who offered the e-cigarette how and um, how did they experience the intervention and how did the patients experience the intervention? So, why I really like this paper is a small sample. So, just twenty one patients and eleven clinicians. I, I like it because it absolutely encapsulates all of the things that we come across in our work all of the time. So the the real common issues of how do we offer e-cigarettes in the healthcare service? So there were four main themes captured from these interviews. So the first was that um, despite clinicians receiving training about the e-cigarette, yes, that improved their knowledge of e-cigarettes, but it didn't uh, diminish their concerns about long-term effectiveness and long-term safety issues. So and and for some clinicians, they felt that actually the training had reinforced their cautiousness. Um, So that was really interesting. The the second main theme that was that clinicians felt, especially the clinicians that were unable to really tease apart the differences between e-cigarettes and cigarettes, they felt that they were going out on a limb by offering these products and they felt that they were prescribing them even though they were offering them for free. Um, patients did not share this view. They actually appreciated the offer. Even if they were sceptical, patients did, by and large, take up the offer. Um, but, but, but clinicians likened it to prescribing cigarettes in some cases. Um, and this is something we hear a lot. So the third main thing was, it, for many of the clinicians, because people were still using nicotine, they didn't view that as a quick success. Okay, so it's this abstinence-based model and this... Um, the, the paper describes how some of the um, some of the clinicians have always held this abstinence-based model of smoking cessation interventions, and that the harm reduction reducing approach, you know, was incongruent with their teaching. And and as I said, the fourth main one, which kind of tied into the first point that I said, was even though staff had training, it didn't really change their existing views of e-cigarettes. But within the paper and not within the abstract, 
actually for staff that had worked in addiction services, they did get it. They did understand where e-cigarettes fit within the armour that they could offer people for smoking cessation. Um, and, and I think that kind of tells us a little bit about something that when we're talking about smoking cessation, we shouldn't maybe just talk about it in terms of smoking. We need to talk about it more broadly in terms of substance use and harm reduction. Links into what you were saying at the uh, beginning of the uh, of the podcast about there are models that make sense with both both areas, with drug and alcohol and, and, and with smoking cessation. Um, it, it also links in with the piece of research that, that I found, which was um, in the uh, Journal of Addiction Medicine by Zwebben and College colleagues which is discontinuing methadone and buprenorphine a review and clinical challenges so this is almost a guide for clinicians about uh, how to work with people who want to reduce their methadone or and or buprenorphine um, and it's you know it, again it challenges those things so you know it talks about how lots of people really want to come off or to taper from that those medications but actually one of the first things to do is to challenge whether this is the right thing for them clinically at that time and they propose a recovery capital checklist to go through, you know, are these things in place? Are you in a, a, a position where this is going to be the right thing? Because there's lots of tapering and withdrawals from um, uh, uh, opiate medication aren't successful. Um, and actually preventing those is, is really important. Um, and it kind of ties into that, that that thing about whether abstinence is, is desirable and for whom it's desirable and to what purpose. Um there were also a whole world of other articles. Of course, there is. There's so much research these days, it's, it's difficult to know where to look. Um, in Addiction Journal, there's um, outcomes um, with opioid medications during pregnancy. Also an interesting one on cognitive boosting interventions for impulsivity. Um, there's a whole range of those kinds of uh, studies at the moment, which is fascinating. Um, poisonings from nitrous oxide. Um, and yes, the other one I wanted to kind of focus on a little bit was a narrative review on environmental impacts of cannabis cultivation in the Journal of Cannabis Research. So I, just, I just think it's kind of a, a, a nice little note towards uh, the kinds of things that, that regulated markets then have to start looking at. You know, what are the environmental impacts? And this talks about the power used uh, for lighting, the, the water used for cultivation, the land used um, in... Uh, when it's when it's grown in places where it can grow outdoors, um, and and actually there's quite a lot of considerations about whether cannabis as a crop can be environmentally uh, kind of neutral, um, and uh, raises some important issues there that are worth looking at. Uh, there's also uh, one that that I did enjoy about uh, translating the alcohol use disorders identification test the audit into the Russian languages, where the authors found there were 61 unique versions. Um, of of this tool that had been translated into Russian and the challenges there of making uh, sure that tools that work in in one language also work in another. Um, again, we'll put up our, our list of uh, addiction treatment related articles on the website um, for you to find. And if we haven't done it by then, then I will uh, delete this section where I say we've done it. Uh, Carol, uh, which piece of uh, research um, took your eye this month? Yeah, so in keeping with the earlier discussions around cannabis uh, legislation in the States, I wanted to talk about uh, a report that has been published in December's edition of the Addiction Journal by Menhofer and Rubley. So they explored the illegal drug market responses to state recreational cannabis laws. And as I mentioned earlier, at a US state level, 18 states and the District of Columbia have passed recreational cannabis laws. 
So that allows individuals over the age of 21 to possess, use and supply limited uh, amounts of cannabis for recreational purposes. And at the time of of this report, uh, it was 15 states that had legalised cannabis for recreational use. So they wanted to compare the prices and self-reported quality of cannabis in states that have recreational cannabis laws uh, with states that do not. So they've done this by using crowdsourced data and administrative data from various resources that they that they mention within the paper. Um, and, and they discuss how the impact of cannabis legalisation on illegal drug markets is rather ambiguous. So they suggest that, uh, thinking about the demand side of things, uh, legalisation should induce legal com- uh, consumption and decrease illegal cannabis consumption leading to potential reductions in illegal uh, cannabis prices and quantities. And then in terms of supply, they suggest that legalisation could induce market entry of legal cannabis producers, uh, whereby illegal producers may decide to remain in the legal market, they may become legal producers, or they may exit the market altogether, leading to reductions in the quantities of of cannabis and therefore the potential um, potentially increasing the price of cannabis due to market concentration. So within the states with recreational cannabis laws, they find that street price of cannabis decreased by 9.2% and law enforcement seizures of cannabis decreased by 93%. However, they also looked at illegal opioids, um, heroin, oxycodone and hydrocodone, for example, and they find that street prices of illegal opioids actually increased in states with recreational cannabis laws. So they, they, you know, they discuss in their paper how recreational cannabis laws in the US states are associated with illegal drug market responses, including reductions in the street price of cannabis and also in the markets for other illegal drugs. Um, and they say how these are not you know, so independent of legal cannabis market regulations. The knock-on and knock-on consequences of, of regulation and regulatory changes. Um, Fascinating. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you both. So now we have our final feature, which is um, a feature again from the PhD Addicted to Research team uh, with uh, Zoe uh, and Rachel uh, talking about uh, smoking cessation in addiction treatment services. And they also interview uh, Dr. Dr. Tom Ainscoe. Um, I'll um, hand over to them now. I used to work in, in treatment services uh, a few years ago. And one day we went to uh, the National Recovery Walk and uh, the local public health people had asked a few of us to go and um, interview people about smoking and ask them if they wanted to quit and, and send them up to the, the van they had with, with all this cool equipment. And it was a it was a really interesting day. All of us walking around to, up to people in the smoking area because that's where you find smokers. Yeah. Um, and the amount of people that were just like utterly outraged that, that people would, would try and challenge them about smoking. We weren't being particularly aggressive. It was just... Yeah, asking people to talk about it. So I was like, this is a really big topic. Everybody here is smoking and nobody wants to know anything about it. So that's kind of how I ended up in it. Okay, that's that's really interesting. And then why do you think this area of research is, is so important? It's it's important because I think everybody knows that, that smoking is really bad, <laughs> for want of a better term. The UK has got a smoking rate of about 14% now, which is really good. But people in well, people with substance use disorders, the, the rates of, of smoking are, are something like... What between what seventy five and ninety eight percent, which compared to fourteen is just ridiculous. And it, uh, I just think it's really important that that should be addressed. I think the whole point about recovery is that you know it's not a quick process, um, 
and you know, it, it's generally and there's many different definitions of recovery but it's generally you know, it's it's making life better it's you know remo- not just removing the substance it's about changing life you know making that better in so many different ways how do you think that, that those addiction services feel about um, providing those services the smoking cessation element I've, I've had some really mixed reviews on this i think the general consensus with a few exceptions is it's it's a great idea um as long as they don't have to do it themselves right mainly because they're already so overworked i think that's increased significantly in the last couple of years when they're already trying to kind of balance everything they have got without adding something else that a lot of them don't feel qualified to be dealing with yes it sounds like there's issues with like training and just sheer capacity to be able to do it on to our interview with dr tom ainscombe when you're trying to when you're trying to deal with smoking cessation kind of in um in drug and alcohol addiction and also mental health which i've also worked in it can be it can be quite difficult you can come up against quite a lot of resistance sometimes um there's still a prevalence of the idea that for people that have undergone drug treatment that um it's kind of the least of their worries that they still smoke sort of thing and it's it's far more important than you tackle their drug use whereas in reality um people are still far more likely to die from, from the tobacco that they're smoking than they are from the drugs that they are, the illicit drugs that they're using. Um, but that can be quite a difficult message to get across sometimes. So um, it's it, it was really important to sort of manage people's kind of expectations and kind of walk them through your logic for for why, why is it you thought that this was an important thing to do. And normally you can bring a lot of people along the way with you. Um, I think a lot of the time it just takes a kind of a bit of persuasion and people to kind of really understand. Because at, at the end of the day, everyone's there to do the same thing, right? Everyone's there to kind of make people's lives better. We were ready to start collecting data. We kind of went to the treatment centre um, who we thought or we'd been told had a, a smoking cessation clinic, but it turned out that it had kind of lapsed because there wasn't that much... Um, interest in it from the patients um, and the staff were so kind of busy and so overrun that it ended up kind of being a way for them to buy back some time sort of thing it kind of gave them an hour well three hours on a Monday afternoon where they could catch up with other work because they were meant to be running the smoking clinic and it wasn't actually happening so but yeah we had to kind of go in go back in retrain everybody um, uh, on the smoking cessation um, and you know, use of medication and stuff like that for it because um, there's some there's some kind of intricacies in terms of uh, like nicotine replacement um, particularly for methadone I think nicotine alters the way that methadone is metabolized so the the there can sometimes be kind of changes that you need to make to people's drugs um, uh, especially if they're on methadone Uh, thanks to uh, thanks there to uh, Zoe, Rachel, and Tom. Um, I mean, I think we've all worked in addiction treatment services in our uh, in our pasts. Um, I, I certainly remember an initiative when I think our local commissioners were trying to stop staff from uh, smoking with uh, service users, and it gained very little traction for many of the uh, the, the reasons kind of raised there. Um, but it, it is a challenge, and it's it's a very real challenge, and one that needs uh, needs to be addressed if if those health benefits are to be seen by service users. I mean, is this something that you've come across in your experiences? Yeah, certainly. I mean, both from my time of working within substance use services, but also all of the issues that they raised are things that we find across the third sector, including into um, homeless charities as well. So. Um, in some work that we did, we found that smoking prevalence rates um, in in staff who work at homeless centres was about 25%. So again, that's that's 10% above the UK average um, smoking rate. Um, and then it's even higher as well, you know, in service users. 
Um, but one of the things which we need to really consider is the physical environments of a lot of the substance use services. There isn't, um, because there's not a good understanding about the, about vaping, for example, as an intervention, they're re- trying to facilitate vaping in a way that it could really encourage the behaviour as opposed to smoking is not well understood. And a lot of these services, they're often old buildings, old houses, smokers are, co- are forced to congregate together in one area. Um, it, it, it's really hard to break the habit when you're, if especially you know if you just take up vaping and then you're forced outside with all of the smokers um, and there's so many people that smoke we also have heard that from service users um, that they will use their cigarette time to actually catch up with their key workers because key workers are really overstretched as they've picked up in that interview these cuts to the uh, you know the financial cuts to substance use services have far, far reaching uh, negative effects in such that staff, uh, you know, not able to take up extensive training in all the things that they would like to, even with the best will in the world. But their time is so stretched that we hear service users saying, I'll use a cigarette break as a chance to get a one-to-one with my key worker because there's no other time for a one-to-one, it's all group work. So we've really got to think about the widespread uh, ramifications of these financial cuts. Thank you, as always, uh, Dr. Carol and Getty from the Addiction Newsroom. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sharon Cox, uh, for joining us for this month's Addictions Edited. Um, and thanks for everyone who's contributed content towards uh, this episode. Uh, we'll write you in the notes uh, accompanying this podcast if I have not mentioned you here. Um, uh, hopefully, see you next month. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.